0: Okay, so here we are Come to the Sri Mahabodhi tree in Anuradhapura, where we will continue our meditation practice. Those of you who are on meditation course and those of us who are staying at the monastery as long-term meditators, we've come here to See one of the most important Buddhist sites that exist in the world. You could say the most important Buddhist site outside of India. And this is the site where the Bodhi tree that was taken from India uh, was planted, and that's the Bodhi tree that you see behind me. And more importantly, it's the Bodhi tree that was brought back to India, to Bodh Gaya, where the original Bodhi tree stood yeah, when it when it was killed. Uh, there are various stories about how the, the Bodhi tree was killed and was brought back at least on one occasion to, seems on, on several occasions, was brought back to India to be replanted. So this is actually the Uh, both the ancestor, and both the descendant and the ancestor of the Bodhi tree in India, since it was brought back to India. It's a very important place, and has great significance for both the Sri Lankan Buddhists and Buddhists around the world. So today I thought I'd talk a little bit about uh, a little bit about what this means for us and what exactly the Bodhi tree means for Buddhists. Because on the one hand, it doesn't mean anything really, it's just a symbol, it's just a a physical manifestation that occurred as a result of, uh, of the Buddha and his teachings and the followers who decided to bring the tree here to Sri Lanka as a symbol for the planting of Buddhism in this country. But in the end it is really just a tree. It doesn't have consciousness and so some people might might not understand, even people who practice the Buddhist teachings might not understand the significance or the importance of the tree. But, but on the other hand, it really is a a uh, focusing uh, entity just as our meditation objects are things that focus our attention and bring our minds back to uh, single-pointedness, keep our minds from being distracted, keep our minds from being pulled away by the objects of the sense, pulled away by the world, pulled away by worldliness. And so, for a cynical person, they might say it's simply a physical object that really is meaningless, and that people who come here to worship or um, make determinations under the Bodhi tree, make make wishes and so on, People who come to meditate here are just fooling themselves. They could do the same at home. If they really want to meditate, they can meditate at home. But this is really, I think, overly cynical and disingenuous, really, because our mind relies on concepts. Our whole life depends on concepts. And so depending on the concepts that we choose, the concepts that we live by, This will determine our practice, it will determine our course. So it's it's one thing to say, claim to know that everything is impermanent suffering and and non-self. It's only body and mind and the five aggregates and so on. And it's only seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling and thinking. But unless you're actually an arahant and actually become enlightened, you're still living in concepts, And you'll say such things and then you'll still become intoxicated by concepts you'll become intoxicated by pleasant sights, pleasant sounds pleasant smells and so on and you'll become you'll still become uh, deluded by other concepts by the concepts of a human being of male and female you'll become intoxicated by food and drink and entertainment by beauty and so on And so this concept of the tree, regardless of what you think of it, it, it has the effect of bringing our minds back to the Dhamma, of reminding us of the Dhamma. What a better, what better object to be the inspiration for a Dhamma talk, like this one, for example. Without this tree, I wouldn't be giving this talk. I wouldn't have the, it wouldn't have the significance and the meaning. And this wouldn't capture the attention of the audience in the same way, but because this is such a, a holy place, and it's considered to be such a uh, an important symbol, or an important object, important entity in, for Buddhist people, that when we come here we give our whole attention to the Dhamma and we forget about the world, we forget about intoxicating sights and sounds and so on. So on the way up here I was in order to prepare myself and and get kind of in the mood myself was, I was reading through the Majjhima Nikaya and I just happened upon the Dhammadyāda Sutta which I thought would be a good, really coincidentally a good um, basis for this talk, to talk about these sorts of things. Because in the Dhammadyāda Sutta, the Buddha distinguishes between someone who is an heir of the Buddha In regards to material character, material requisites, and one who is an heir to the Buddha in regards to the Dhamma. So the Buddha said, Be an heir to my Dhamma. Inherit my Dhamma, my teaching. Don't inherit my uh, physical, material uh, wealth, my my material riches. Be an an inheritant. Be an. An heir to my dhamma, to my teaching, inherent my dhamma, my teaching, and th- so th- this is useful to to actually remind us not to take these symbols too seriously, or not to take the uh, the object, physical object, too seriously. So w- how we should see the bodhi tree is as a symbol and as something to remind us and something to encourage us in a good way. We shouldn't see it as the uh, the highest goal or the highest object of worship. Actually, the highest object of worship in the Buddha's teaching is the Dhamma, even more so than the Buddha, certainly more so than the Bodhi tree. The Buddha himself, when he became enlightened, he thought, who will I worship now, who will I pay respect to? And he thought, there's no one in the world who I could possibly pay respect to, who would be worthy of my respect. But this Dhamma, this reality that I've realized, this is worthy of my respect. So even the Buddha paid respect and put the Dhamma as higher higher than himself. So it would be wrong for us to come here and think that by coming to Anuradhapura, by coming to be under the Bodhi tree, now we are real Buddhists or now we're living by the Dhamma or we're heirs to the Buddha. We are descendants of the Buddha because we come and bow down and pay respect to the Bodhi tree. Rather we should take it as a encouragement to practice the Buddha's teaching and become true heirs to the Buddha, true heirs to his Dhamma. So he said in this way, be heirs to my Dhamma, don't be heirs to my material requisites, my material gains, because the Buddha, as the Buddha, in, in the Buddha's time, and, and since the time in the Buddha, there has been quite a um, great gains accumulated by the Buddha and his followers. If you look, this is something, this is some great gain for us to have such a beautiful, uh, ancient uh, Buddhist holy place. You know, the stone and the architecture, and even the money in here that comes in. And, all of the requisites that we get by being involved with such a place and involved with the Buddha's teaching. It's very easy for us to become intoxicated by the material gains. So even in the Buddha's time, monks who were living with the Buddha would find that they were quite well taken care of by the lay people. And this can happen even more so nowadays when the Buddha isn't around to remind us that entire monasteries will become intoxicated and caught up by gain and fame and praise and and, uh, esteem by the lay people. So in a place like this you might find uh, sometimes people becoming intoxicated by the the opulence and the, the greatness. It can also happen that people become intoxicated, as I said, with the the place itself, thinking that by being and living in the holy place, they are somehow associated with the Buddha. The Buddha said, like a spoon that never tastes the flavor of the soup, it doesn't matter how close you get. You could live under the Bodhi tree like the birds and the, the monkeys and the squirrels and still never become enlightened like them. It's just like those people who believe that by bathing in the river Ganges, the Ganga River, by bathing in the river, you become purified. And the Buddha said, well, in that case, why aren't the turtles and the fishes all purified? Why aren't they enlightened as well? And so the material is just material. In the end, it is just rupa-nama, and it's something that we should see in this way. And so the Buddha described this. Why this sutta? I think is a really good basis for our discussion today, is because the Buddha used this as a basis to 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 remind the monks or tell them, relate to the monks, his own search. And this also helps to explain to the audience and people listening what is the significance of the Bodhi tree, where does it come from? So the Buddha explained in the Dhammadiya Sutta, gave one explanation of 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 where, it all, where this all came from and who he was and what his search was. He said before I became enlightened, before he became enlightened he also was searching for things, um, for material things. He was also intoxicated by worldly things. And the way he put it was like this, when I, when I was when I was unenlightened the things I was looking for were were, uh, were caught up with so much suffering and so much danger My, he said, myself being subject to birth, I was seeking after things subject to birth myself subject to old age, I was seeking after things subject to, to aging, myself subject to sickness, I was seeking out things subject to sickness myself subject to death I was seeking after things, subject to death. It was ridiculous on both sides. Myself, subject to sadness, sorrow, suffering. Myself, subject to defilement. I was seeking after things, subject to defilement. So this this is... the, The realization that he got was that this is absurd on both sides. Even if the things you are seeking after are uh, were permanent, you, know? you yourself are subject to 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 aging. You yourself are subject to death, so you can't keep them. But none none of them are are themselves permanent. So either you die first, or the things that you cling to disappear first. You yourself are defiled. You cling to other things that are defiled. You cling to people. You cling to your spouse, you cling to your family, to your friends, you cling to places, you cling to money, you cling to wealth and possessions. And all of these things are subject to defilement, subject to uh, subject to sickness, subject to death, subject to disappearance. <clears throat> if it's people, then they get old, sick and die. And this is called the Anaryaparyasana, the, the ignoble quest. And he realized that this was, the, this, this was a quest that was not of any benefit to him. And actually in, in Hindu and Buddhist culture, as the Buddha was, was coming from a Hindu culture, he would have realized that actually this, this isn't just a one-time thing. This is a cycle. We're continuing this cycle. It was something that was actually quite uh, well-known at the time that this was the cycle of of rebirth. If a person clings to these things, it's not just death once. It's death again and again and again. And again and again we cling to these things. We seek out for these things. We're born and we're taught from from birth to seek out these things. As women, we're taught to seek out men. As men, we're taught to seek out women. We're taught to seek out money. We're taught to seek out possession. material possessions. We're taught to seek out a house and a family, to seek out children. We're taught to seek out luxury, we're taught to seek out wealth. We're taught to seek out learning and, and, and skill and handicrafts. We're taught to seek out a job. And the Buddha realized that actually what we're taught to seek out is old age, sickness and death. We're taught to seek out negligence and defilement. And so we're taught to, teach out, to seek out rebirth again and again and again. The things that we're taught in our culture, by our society, by media, by the world, we're taught to seek out a never-ending cycle of dissatisfaction and disappointment. And again and again we forget, so again and again we think this is something new and we cling to it. And in the end, find only disappointment, meaninglessness. We find nothing. We find no benefit. And ourselves, subject to defilement, we become angry, we become greedy, we become addicted and attached and conceited and confused and run around in circles. And we cause suffering for ourselves, suffering for others. And in the end, we, uh, we, it's, it's meaningless. And we get old, we get sick, and we die, and then it starts all over again. So then he thought to himself, well, what is the answer? There's only one answer, and that's to seek out what is free from these things. To seek out something that is free from birth, free from old age, free from sickness, free from death, free from sorrow, and free from defilement. And so, what, this is the story of the Buddha, that when he was living as a prince, he decided that he would give up all of this, all of the luxury, the wonders that he had, the palace, the, uh, the, 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 his wife, his child, his father, his mother, his, his, his title as a prince, to give it all up, seeing that all of this was just, just ephemeral, Manifestations of physical and mental reality, of experience, coming and going. And that none of it was going to last. None of it was going to satisfy him. That there's nothing in the world that could possibly satisfy him. So he decided to seek out the uh, the non-arisen, to find something that hadn't arisen, because everything that arises passes away. And so he shaved off his head and he shaved off his, his hair and beard. Gave up his princely robe, princely clothes, put on rags, wandered for alms, and he says he wandered the whole country looking for a teacher, and he found two teachers. The first teacher he found, Alara uh, Kalama, uh, it taught him how to gain some uh, immaterial, formless jhana or, or uh, to practice some kind of tranquility meditation that focused the mind and to enter into the sphere of nothingness, and he practiced it. He learned it by heart the teaching, and then he practiced it, and eventually he realized this state. So he went. The, the, this teacher would have been someone, some sort of Hindu yogi who had some high attainment, this this attainment of the sphere of nothingness. Because in India, even now, you'll find such such teacher. And he attained the same state that, that his teacher attained. But he realized that this wasn't something that was unarisen. It was something that, had, that was arisen. And it didn't lead to freedom from suffering. It only led to rebirth in the formless realm. And because of his attainment and his perfection of mind, he knew that he had been there before and, and passed away from it. He knew that this wasn't the way out of suffering. This wasn't eternal because it arose the perception of nothingness, arose in his mind, and then it ceases. And so he left that teacher and he went to find another teacher and it was Udaka Ramaputta who himself hadn't realized any special attainment but had a teacher who had, who had passed away, Rama. And he taught the Bodhisattva the Rama's teachings that led all the way to the highest they say, the highest tranquility spiritual attainment, which is the attainment of neither perception nor non-perception. <coughs> and he actually was able to attain this as well, even though his, his own teacher, Uddhaka Ramaputta, wasn't able to attain this, this result. But he realized that this also wasn't um, the wasn't end of suffering. Wasn't freedom from suffering the state of? It only led to the state of neither perception nor non-perception, which is the highest tranquility state. And if he died there, he would be born in the Brahma realm, the formless God realm of neither perception nor non-perception. But it's still a state that arises in the mind; it still has mind arising. And he realized that any state that he entered into was still subject to what you might call old age, sickness and death, in the sense that it gets old, it starts to break up and it passes away. The state disappears, the state ends. And this later came to be the Buddha's teaching on Sankara dukkha, that even even spiritual attainments of any kind, even the attainment of Godhood, can be considered suffering because it's something you have to work very, very hard at. The, they don't, it doesn't, the texts don't talk about, it, and the Buddha didn't talk about how difficult it was for him to reach those states, but he must have worked quite hard to purify his mind, uh, to, to, to focus his mind and be able to enter those, those states. And yet he realized that it was all pointless, it, it had no lasting effect. It had the result of whatever whatever work he had put into it. and when the work was finished, then the results were finished. And so he he decided that that there was no way that he could he could find this teaching. He'd find this out from from anyone else. He had to give up everything. He had to give up his teachers, he had to give up all of his learning, all of his knowledge. He had to, in the end, give up all of, of reality, all of experience. And he realized that every experience has to arise, that, that arises has to cease. And so he knew intuitively that this was something he had to find for himself. Because there was no one on earth who could teach it. And so he went and found this place. He wandered through India, looking for no longer looking for a teacher, but looking for a suitable place to strive. And he found a place that was most likely very similar to this place in Senanigama, near Bodh, near near Gaya, in the place that is now called Buddhagaya. And it was near Uruvela at the time. There was a place called Uruvela near there. And this is where he he lay down he sat down to strive under a tree which later became called the Bodhi tree. and it's the type of tree that you see behind me and that we have all around here many Bodhi trees. Here. And in India, if you go to India, especially in Uttar Pradesh and, and Bihar, you'll see Bodhi trees lining the street, lining the roads. It's the natural habitat of the Bodhi tree. So it was a tree that was actually quite common in that area most likely, at least now it is. If you go there today, you'll see Bodhi trees throughout the country. And he said, and I found that, I found the supreme freedom from bondage, I found enlightenment, I found freedom from suffering for myself, and this is what I teach. And the sutta goes on to talk about something that is even perhaps more important. It's the actual teaching and the actual um, development and cultivation of tranquility and insight. And it relates to the topic of this uh, this this talk that I'm giving in regards to how important a place like this is. And as I said, it's important because it it takes us away from the world. It takes us away from our um, intoxications with the five senses, with sight, sounds, smells, tastes, and feelings. And this is the teaching that the Buddha gave in the Dhamma-dayāda-sutta. After, after reminding the monks of, of his attainment of enlightenment, which is really the significance of the Bodhi-tree in a historical context, he began to explain to them the Dhamma that he had realized, and that is that there are these five uh, Kama guna, which can be translated as these cords or these ropes of uh, of sensuality. This is sights that are intoxicating, sounds that are intoxicating, smells that are intoxicating, tastes that are intoxicating, and feelings that are intoxicating. And he he pointed this out as the the defining factor of our spiritual life or a defining factor of our spiritual life. He taught that um, any any meditator who is still caught up in these things will not be able to understand the truth, will be caught up by Mara. He said, just like a deer that is uh, that is caught up in a snare, or, or, or many snares, a, a heap of snares, He said, A person who is caught up with these things will never be able to become free, will never be able to live as they please, will never be free. The, the key to why we're not able to understand the truth is our infatuation with the senses. Even as meditators, when we undertake a meditation course, the first thing we have to do is become free from these things, the, the senses. Our first task is to pull ourselves out of these so that the things that we see are just seeing, the things that we hear are just hearing. This is why the Buddha gave to Bahiya, this this is the very core of his teaching, ditte dittamataṁ bhavisati. What you see, let it be just seeing. What you hear, let it be just hearing. What you sense, let it be just sensing. If you can do this, there will be no, no attachment for you. You will find no self in these things. Without doing this, we can't hope to understand the truth. And we can't hope to live in freedom from suffering. We can't hope to understand our, the causes of suffering. We can't hope to understand our problems. Our minds will be caught up by Mara. And so the way that we become free from suffering is to free ourselves from the infatuation with worldliness, the infatuation with the world around us, our infatuation with sights and sounds and smells and tastes and feelings, our infatuation with objects of the sense, or even our infatuation with ideas of becoming this or becoming that, of not being this and not being that. And this is what we do in the practice of meditation. This is why we we teach the meditators to do something that seems so menial and and even pointless. When you see something, to just remind yourself seeing. When you hear something, to remind yourself hearing. When you walk, to just know that you're walking. When you stand, to just know that you're standing. Whatever experience arises, to see it just for what it is. This is to pull ourselves out of the infatuation of the senses. In fact, all of, addi- all of our addictions, all of our sufferings, all of our problems in life come back and stem from the five senses, or the six senses. This is the Buddha's teaching on Paticha Samuppada. He said also in the, Sutta, the, the Dhamma Dayada Sutta earlier, he said after he became enlightened, the reason why he, didn't, he, he decided not to teach, the reason why he decided not to teach is because he saw that the world was infatuated with like worldliness, he called. Caught up by worldliness and he said there's no way they can understand dependent origination. This is actually the words that he used was what they won't be able to understand is dependent origination. And by these words of the Buddha we can see how important this doctrine is of the, the the uh the arising according to cause and effect. Causal co-arising, that some things arise based on other things, and without those causes arising, there will not arise the effect. This is the teaching on how nāma-rūpa leads to the six senses and the six senses lead to Contact and contact leads to feeling and feeling leads to craving and craving leads to clinging and clinging leads to seeking and seeking leads to becoming and so on. Or becoming leads to, 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 to birth. And if we can understand this teaching, if, 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 if we can practice and see experience piece by piece by piece that the sights and the sounds and the smells are just sights and sounds and smells, The feelings that arise are just feeling. When you see something, there will arise a pleasurable or a displeasure. An unpleasant sensation. Pleasant or an unpleasant sensation. Or else there will arise a neutral sensation. And then because of that, there will arise craving for it or clinging to it. Desire for it or attachment to it. When it's there, you'll become attached to it. When it's gone, you'll want for it. Or when it's there, you'll become avert will um, become displeased with it and when it's gone you'll you'll become afraid of it all of our problems in life they come down to this this cause and effect relationship so our practice is simply when we see to know that we're seeing when we have the feelings to know that we have the feelings when we have the craving to know that we have the craving when we have the clinging when we're when we're, we want something when we want to chase after something when we're Seeking something to know that we're seeking, it. to break up the sequence, to 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 change the sequence, to interfere with this sequence, so that it doesn't so that it doesn't continue, so that when seeing is just seeing, then seeing is not something pleasurable. When pleasure when <coughs> pleasure arises, it's only pleasure, and to not it's not something worth clinging to. When cling when crave to crave. When craving arises, to know that it's not worth clinging. When clinging arises, to know that it's not worth seeking. When seeking arises, to know that we should not continue seeking. And to know that we are seeking and to see the suffering that comes from seeking. If we can break experience up in, in this way, with everything that we're clinging to, things that we like and things that we dislike, our whole lives will become free from suffering. And we'll be able to realize the truth of the, Of the Buddha's teaching, the truth of reality. We'll be able to live according to the truth of reality. We'll be able to see this whole world just for what it is. Just how we think we live our lives. We think that we live in the world seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. But so much of our lives is not here, is not now. Even though we're here and now sitting on the sand, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, and thinking, our minds are so often caught up in what is just in the end the sixth sense, the sense of the mind, thinking. Caught up in ideas and papancha, as the Buddha said. This diversification or making more of things than they actually are. Cultivating projections and ideas and concepts. Concepts like the Bodhi tree or concepts like the Buddha. Even these concepts in the end we have to be free from. And we have to see that even here under the Bodhi tree, all that we have is body and mind. So this is perhaps one one of the most ideal places for coming to realize this, because here we have this symbol of enlightenment to remind us. Anytime our mind wanders, we have like it's as though we have the Buddha watching over us, and we know that anytime our mind wanders into sensuality or aversion we will become embarrassed and remind ourselves, and we, we will be reminded of the severe, severity and the importance of our practice. And also it's a place that is quite peaceful and free from sensuality for this reason, because no one here dares to do or say things that are uh, chaotic or disruptive. And so we sh- rather than just coming here to bow down and pay respect, even though these are useful and worthwhile things, we should now take this opportunity Now we have this great opportunity, we should take it and practice meditation. So now we will continue on and and together we can do a group meditation. We'll try to do first mindful prostration and then walking and then sitting. So that's all for today.